Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. Uh, we've got a special edition today. We are separated by 3,000 miles. Here I am in Battleground, Washington, and the other Pugsters are back in Connecticut, right there in the Connecticut River Valley. But uh, we're both uh, with you today, and we're glad that you've uh, decided to spend some time with us. And uh, in case you're wondering who I am, if this is the first time you've listened to the show, my name is uh, C.R. Wiley, and I am serving a church now in Vancouver, Washington, Westminster Presbyterian Church. And uh, so that's why I now live in Battleground. Uh, I've written a number of things, and I've got some things coming up. I'll talk about uh, those in a, in a moment or two in terms of speaking engagements that folks who are out there in podcast land might want to avail themselves of. But enough about me. So, guys, why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at a variety of places. And, yep, we'll be working on a book this summer, a uh, handbook for the baptized. Um, and interestingly, just before I, I uh, uh, hand it over to Glenn, as one of the interesting um, terms uh, used in the Book of Romans for participation in Christ linked with baptism is the term using our body as a weapon. And it was very much tied to the battle that uh, baptism was introducing us to. So more on that over the next few months, but uh, just right. wanted to throw that out there, a teaser. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to be uh, <laughs> you know, entertained by that, uh, that, that subject. Anyway, Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great. And uh, Glenn, you have, are you, you going to share a little bit about your future today, or are we saving that for another show? Oh, we're going to save that for another show. Okay, so you need to listen very carefully, podcast <laughs> fans, to uh, future episodes to learn about the uh, auspicious or the propitious or however we want to describe it, transition that Glenn's about to enter into, but I'm giving away too much already. So I'll shut up. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta watch language of transition. these days. <laughs> right, that's, right. That's, right. that's right. That's right. That's right. So stay tuned. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I just wanted to bring folks up to speed on a couple of other things in terms of my book on Tom Bombadil right now, it's being reviewed by the Tolkien estate. We had talked a little bit about, uh, the fact that I was quoting a lot and I was using some, you know, t titles and terms and stuff like that, that might need to be sort of uh, vetted by those guys. And that's what's going on right now. So my book on, on Bombadil is nearing completion. I hope uh, if the estate says you need to change this and this, then I got to go back and do a little work. But if everything, it gets the green light from the estate, we are near the finish line and it should be available soon. And in light of that, I'm going to be speaking uh, in the Seattle area. And when this show comes out on Monday, the following Friday and Saturday, no, actually the following Saturday up in St. Marysville, uh, just north of Seattle, I'm going to be speaking uh, at a fiction conference, uh, fiction festival. And uh, so uh, anyways, if you would like to learn more about that, just look up. I think it's the Regant. Uh, it's R-E or R-A-G-G-A-N-T Fiction Festival. I think that's what it is. And uh, hopefully you can participate in that or be a part of that. Another thing that's happened is I'm going to be back in New England at the end of March to speak at a men's retreat at Singing Hills Campground. And Singing Hills is a beautiful camp located not too far from Dartmouth. Uh, so right there on the near the border of Vermont and New Hampshire uh, in the vicinity of Dartmouth. 
Anyway, so I'll be there uh, 26th to the 28th. And I just was asked to speak in Oklahoma City, in Oklahoma, which is where you would think it would be, <laughs> uh, and on uh, Saturday, April 17th. So I'll let you know about that a little more as things get, you know, clo- we get closer to that date. Anyway, enough about me. So, Glenn, it's your day today. And what are we talking about? Did you get to introduce? Yeah, I did. Okay. I'm a little spaced out right now. I'm, I'm out of my element, as you can see. <laughs> All right, right. Yeah. Well, our topic today, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, mythology and uh, mythology and Tolkien specifically. And this is coming out of a book by uh, Brad Berzer called uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Sanctifying Myth. And this is a great book. It's got a lot of really good stuff in it. But I'm just going to grab a few of the ideas out of the introduction and see what happens with them. Great, great. Now, Brad's a friend of mine, good friend. And uh, so I'm glad that we're tackling his book. Yeah, he teaches at Hillsdale, for those of you who don't know him. Now, like I said, I'm going to pick up a couple of of, uh, quotes out of the introduction and and see where they lead. Um, the, The big theme is mythology, but he starts off where you might expect him to with Tolkien in the area of fairy. Okay, so this is what he has to say. For Tolkien, one of the best ways to understand the gift of grace was through fairy, which offered a glimpse of the way in which sacrament and liturgy infuse the natural law and the natural order. Fairy connects a person to his past and helps order his understanding of the moral universe. In an essay describing the greatness of the medieval poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Tolkien wrote, and this is a quote from Tolkien now, behind our poems stalk the figures of elder myth and through the lines are heard the echoes of ancient cults, beliefs, and symbols remote from the consciousness of an educated moralist, but also a poet of the late 14th century. His story is not about those old things, but it received part of its life, its vividness, its tension from them. That is the way with the greater fairy stories, of which this is one. There is indeed no better medium for moral teaching than the good fairy story, by which I mean a real deep-rooted tale told as a tale and not as a thinly disguised moral allegory. That's the end of the quote. Berzer continues, not only does fairy teach us higher truths, it also bonds us together in communities of which there are two kinds. The one which is of this time and place and the one which transcends all times and all places. As Chesterton wrote, beauty and terror are very real things, but they're also related to a real spiritual world and to touch them at all, even in doubt or fancy, is to stir the deep things of the soul. Okay, so when Tolkien is talking about fairy stories, again, this is the kind of thing that we've talked about in an earlier episode where we talked about his essay on fairy stories. But Tolkien sees these fairy stories as, well, a a type of myth that does a couple of different things. First of all, uh, it does connect us to the past. It it connects us to our, our history but they're also universal truths that are taught in them. And these universal truths, he notes, have to do with, um, as he puts it, as Berzer puts it, uh, sacrament and liturgy that infuse the natural law and the natural order. Hmm. So hmm. when he, when okay. Tolkien read what he considered a fairy story, he saw things beyond the story. You know, um, 
in a review of the Penguin edition of the Odyssey, one reviewer commented, the fact that this sold a million copies demonstrates that modern readers read for the plot, hmm. which is a pretty damning judgment on the translation because modern readers do read for the plot. You know, we read Sir Gawain, Gawain and the Green Knight. We read these fairy stories and we just want to know what the events are. For Tolkien, they went way, way beyond just the events. It was much more than just the plot. It opens a window into, well, grace, into beauty, into sacrament. Um, again, he talks about one of the things about fairy stories is they take things from ordinary life and infuse them with deeper meaning. So, you know, if you think of the liturgy, bread and wine, the, they were the sort of staples of life um, in, the, uh, uh, in, in the period that Jesus lived. And yet suddenly these things are infused with a new meaning, something greater, deeper, um, ultimately more real than the bread and wine themselves. Fairy stories to Tolkien do the same thing. Now, a question I've got about that, Glenn, is uh, do the elements reveal something present in them that has been always there in some sense, or is new meaning infused? Now, I, that's, I think that they, these things can tie together, in, in, you know, in the sense that the meanings that are present could be pointing to the thing that, you know, is, you know, sort of their fulfillment. But, but I, I guess the, the thought is, is that if, uh, uh, if, the, if the first uh, is not the case, in other words, if, if something is uh, sort of infused into like a meaningless or a seemingly meaningless receptacle, then it's just simply sort of uh, some external force acting on it rather than some kind of inner reality kind of coming out. You see, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I, th I think where I would go with this would be um, someone like Augustine or even Calvin talked about sacraments as being visible promises. And the idea being that you are taking, you know, to Calvin, he says, look, you know, the fact is we are so bound to the physical world. We're so bound to time and space that it's hard for us to raise our vision to spiritual things. So God, in his grace, takes things that are material, bread, wine, the water of baptism, uh, those sorts of things. He takes those and uses them as a picture of grace. He gives them to us as sacraments so that through participation in the sacraments, we can grasp this greater spiritual reality. And the two of them are intimately connected. So bread and wine nourish the body. They give you health. They give you strength. Um, in the case of wine, in, in the Psalms, wine uh, God gives wine to gladden the hearts of men. You know, so all of these things are intrinsic in bread and wine. I'll drink to that. <laughs> but then Christ comes along and says, this is my body, this is my blood. In the same way that we draw health and strength and nourishment and joy from bread and wine, these are the things that are that receive their highest expression in Christ. Christ is our life. He is our health. He is our joy. So the sacraments 
in, you know, in Calvin, the sacraments pick up on what is real and true about the physical elements, but then raise this by analogy, at the very least, raise this to a higher standard in that they become those things for us spiritually as well. Yeah, I guess, I guess the thing, and I'm certainly on board with all of that, I guess the thing I'm getting at is that in terms of uh, Christ as creator, so all things came into being through him, mm-hmm. that would mean uh, all of the material that's used in the making of bread and wine, you know, uh, so so in other words, this isn't something that just occurs to Jesus on the spot. Oh, by the way, this is something that just as a handy, you know, tool to illustrate my point. <laughs> I never right. thought about this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead, this is like, no, I made this world. I made the cultures that created bread and wine, cultivating, and you know, uh, the you know, and 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 you know, I'm even in in the in terms of the arts that are required to to create good bread, good wine, right. I'm involved in all that. In fact, I was leading the whole process along from the beginning so I could use this today <laughs> to, to make my point. You, you see I'm getting at? Yeah, and I, I, you know, given divine sovereignty, foreknowledge, uh, omniscience, all of that sort of thing, I got no problem with that. I think that, that that's there. Um, it depends on whether you're trying to look at this from the spec- perspective of eternity or whether you're looking at it in terms of the, well, I hate to sound like a historicist, but the, um, the, the dynamic of what is happening. I don't think the bread and wine represented or showed out the body and blood of Christ before the Lord's Supper, before the Last Supper. Right. So that, that was really where I was going with it. Right. Yeah. There is something to be said for the institution, the words of institution. Yeah, right. This is- but but maybe maybe there was in terms of redemptive history and and the way these elements were were continuously utilized in sacrifice and 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 then right. and, and and the like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a curious question because I mean I, I think the way I mean I've been reading more Lewis on these questions, but the way he he was thinking of these things from the, the material I've been reading lately is that that um, they were conceiving of the stories of the great cultures and stuff um, in a very full picture sense and reading them as Christians. They weren't, they weren't shying away from that. Um, but one of the things they were, they were really after was something analogous to, or well, within the bounds of what, you know, cl- classically is called natural theology. Um, but they were widening it beyond merely philosophical arguments or or just a metaphysical vision but also the 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 various stories and myths of each culture and so the desire of the nations um is is very much a part of the created order even in its fallen state and though that desire is of course um you know uh, directed improperly to find its fulfillment in the wrong thing until christ comes there is something about that desire there that shapes and echoes in all of these stories, all these myths that is, is looking towards pointing towards. So when it points to itself in the imminent frame, if you can borrow a Charles Taylor term there, of course it's misguided and it doesn't go beyond itself. It's, it's, it's sphere of references within it, within, within the fallen creation. So there is idolatry there. There is an eclipse of the full meaning. 
But when the light of truth comes and all things are brought into subjection to that truth, um, the light of the Christ is the light of the Gentiles, right? The light that illumines everything, every human, right? And so this these things come into to contact, and then all of a sudden we have what Lewis and Tolkien are up to. We have the way in which there was a witness within every myth, every story from every culture that yes, it was, it needs to be purified and redirected, but it was really pointing even as it went its own wrong way. That's a hard little dialectic to get a hold of, but I think well, that's what they're up to. Yeah, I think that it may, may, may be a way to sort of help reformed people um, interpret what we're, what we're getting at is, you know, um, the ascetics, um, you know, rejected um, wealth, rejected, you know, the sort of the, the interchange of social life, rejected even sensual pleasure, and with, for the fear that these things could be a means towards their damnation. Now, I'm not saying that the best ascetics thought this way, but I think in, a, in many in many minds that was the that was the argument. So, if you don't want to become greedy, don't even touch money. If you don't want to uh, become lustful, don't even look at a woman. You know those sorts of things. Um, and the reformed said, no, I mean these things are good things, even though um, we can, uh, because of our sinful propensities. Uh, you know, idolat make them idols uh, and pursue them wrongly. They're good things and and from the hand of God. I think that when we think about like literature, myths, things that come to us from antiquity, there's a fear that if we if we meddle with those things, if we dabble in those things, we're going to be uh, seduced and we're going to find ourselves, uh, you, know, you know, guilty of great, you know, Air, you know, falling into air, and I think that while I I I think that's a real danger. I, I think that uh, you know to use another example, another illustration, um, nuclear fission gives us light and heat. From, you know, the sun, that's the sun, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. So is it fission or fusion? I can't remember which. Fusion. I'm not a sun. Yeah. Yeah. So so you you we, now you get too close to the sun, you die. <laughs> you get too far away from the sun, though, you also die. In other words, we need this stuff sort of uh, portioned out to us in the right amounts. When we think about nuclear power, you know, it can light a city or it can blow a city up. And, uh, you know, to forego the use of, of you know, the certain, the certain technology because it can be misused, to me, is somewhat similar to saying, uh, you know, we're not even going to think about the myths from a Christian perspective. It's just too dangerous. Yeah, I, I just like to note that this is one of the criticisms that you see leveled at the Renaissance, that it was a revival of paganism, that it was fundamentally pagan. You get this in people like Francis Schaeffer. It's a complete misunderstanding of what they were doing in the Renaissance, but that's that's a different show. And, and for the systematic theologians out there, let, let's think of it from this angle. We critique rightly theological liberalism because what it does is it takes unconverted categories and forces scripture to 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 basically fill be redrawn within that mold. 
we're arguing the exact opposite. <laughs> and that's what they, that we're taking those categories and forcing them into the biblical and theological mold, but on the level of the biblical metaphysic and reality vision, not merely on the level of the, the story. And so that's where I think, you know, I think that's really what's, what's happening here. This is exactly the same thing classical Christianity has always been doing, bringing all things into conformity to Christ. But these stories are being told and engaged and developed in light of the full reality vision of Christianity. Um, and so, um, and I think because we're used to only focusing oftentimes just on redemptive history, we don't know how to lift up and say redemptive history is a, is a history about certain agents in relation that are um, manifest in that history, but are more than that history. And so these, this is what enables us to, to engage with these other stories from that biblical reality vision um, and, and, and shed light on what is true in them and what isn't. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways we've sort of made our peace with the idea, or at least a lot of Christians have made their peace with the idea of philosophy. You know, Greek philosophy is a way of helping us think through uh, through Scripture. Tolkien is taking that. Tolkien would have no problem with that, but he's taking it a step further and saying it's not just their philosophy; it's their mythology. Let me read a little bit more here from Berzer. Myth, Tolkien thought can convey the sort of profound truth that was intransigent to description or analysis in terms of facts and figures, and is therefore a more powerful weapon for cultural renewal than is modern rationalist science and technology. Myth can emphasize the beauty of God's creation as well as the sacramental nature of life. This is a quote. Our time, sick nigh unto death of utilitarianism and literalness, cries out from myth and parable, American novelist and political writer Russell Kirk explained. Great myths are not merely susceptible of rational interpretation. They are truth, transcendent truth. That's the end of the quote. Tolkien believed that myth can teach men and women how to be fully and truly men and women, not mere cogs in the vast machinery of modern technological society. In his inimitable way, Chesterton once wrote that, quote, imaginative does not mean imaginary. It does not follow that it is all what the moderns call subjective when they mean false. Every true artist does feel, consciously or unconsciously, that he is touching transcendental truths, that his images are shadows of things seen through the veil. In other words, the natural mystic does not know that there is something there, something behind the clouds or within the trees, But he believes that the pursuit of beauty is the way to find it, that imagination is a sort of incantation that can call it up. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the quote. I mean, there's there's much more here. Uh, He analyzes myth from the perspective of scientists and fundamentalists, on the other hand. But one of the key points that he makes, I'm not going to read any more right now. One of the key points he makes is that there's danger here. Remember, fairy is a place of both beauty and danger. You can't enter fairy without being invited. And even if you are invited, it is always a perilous place to go. And in the same way, mythology, if it is left pagan, is also exceedingly dangerous. What Tolkien believed, though, is that it is the part of Christians to, well, as the title says, sanctify myth. We need to go into the mythologies and from there, well, 
Christianize them. You know, this yeah. is what the poet of Beowulf does. This is what Sir Gawain in the Green Knight does. This is what, well, fill in the blank. And this is what he tried to do with the Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion. Yeah, this brings up something that uh, is kind of fresh in my mind because of some reading I've been doing in René Girard. Um, René Girard um, uh, understood the um, sort of the, well, the dark side of myth. And what, what he believed is that, that, the, that the myths uh, are intended to obscure the sacrifice of the scapegoat. So his idea was that, you know, say we're talking about anything like Oedipus or, you know, any of this, any of the, uh, you say Greek myths or even Norse myths, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, a victim that is beneath the surface that we can't see. Uh, and that victim is all, often uh, deified uh, in the course of the telling of the myth. So as the myth develops, so not only is the, is there a victim, there's a God and they happen to be one and the same. Now this ought to start sounding familiar to us as, as Christians, <laughs> but, um, but what, what Gerard said is that um, what you had in um, the myths uh, that we see around the world is the, uh, conviction that the that the victim was genuinely guilty that it that it was that the victim was actually a scapegoat not a spotless lamb of god you know there was mm. not a lamb who was innocent but a goat who deserved what he got <laughs> and uh, um but what christianity did is christianity by presenting christ as innocent nevertheless dying for the people completely turned everything upside down so what what you have in Christianity is the antidote, the uh, literally the antidote to mythology, which, when you think about it, is precisely what you need to to have in order to redeem the myths. You know, in other words, it, it, Christians are the only ones who could possibly redeem the myths. Now, I'm taking Gerard's point at face value. Maybe people would disagree with him and his assessment. He's a pretty significant figure, and I think he was he was he was uh, enshrined as one of the forty in France. Uh, I believe that there's a you know people like Voltaire and Rousseau and so forth. He's now one of those guys in their minds. Uh, so he's I gone. I wouldn't want to be in a group with Rousseau personally, but you know I'm not French. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm getting at. So in other in other words, he's had a huge impact on the way people think and. I'm still trying to I'm still trying to you know sort of work through whether or not I I agree with his assessment that all myth is in some sense a cover up for some kind of scapegoating, but I think he's still got a good point. Well, and and I think that oh, sorry, uh, um, yeah, I mean I think that that would definitely be a Western twist and even a Western reading of of Christianity. I think I mean uh, I think maybe Orthodoxy would take a little issue with that, especially since they don't see the victim and guilt side, and they read the cross a, a bit with a bit of a different emphasis and and probably the myths a bit differently too. But but I think there is that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot there, and I think they, I think Gerard has to be and should be. I mean what, what Baltazar. Um, the Catholic theologian um, engaged him very much. They had their disagreements, but he also understood very thoroughly what was soundly Christian about what he was up to. 
Um, I just want to throw this out before I forget, because that happens very easily. But Lewis was talking about, and I, I'm happy to return back to the other point, but Lewis was talking about the way in which we almost need to repaganize the modern world just to understand properly um, the Christian atoning vision. And maybe Girard is, is kind of onto something similar to that. And his point is not to turn people back into pagans, but something the pagans got that the modern world doesn't was this, um, was this kind of religious depth that is missing in the modern world. Um, it is very similar. I mean, I remember Dave Wells had a book where he talked about, we now read the, the Bible therapeutically rather than in light of the religion of the Old Testament. Uh, Lewis was similarly saying we read the religion of scripture apart from the, 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 the world of the gods and, and the enchanted world now. Um, and that those things need to be retrieved. So just as Wells is trying to retrieve the Old Testament redemptive history for, for the gospel to get away from therapeutic, uh, Lewis is even further in saying, wait a minute, you're, even to read the scripture, we must enter the world it entered into. Anyway, I hope I didn't take your no, point off too No, that, that, that's quite fine. The, the, I think that Tolkien is approaching it from the opposite direction of Gerard, though. Um, if I'm reading uh, Berser right, and if Berser's reading Tolkien right, um, he would say that, I, I think uh, Beerser used the phrase uh, that what you have in myths is splintered light, which may have come from Tolkien himself. Mm. There's a certain, there is light, there is general revelation mm. that comes through in the myth, the myths, but it's missed, it's, it's splintered, it's mixed with so many other things that it needs redeeming. You know, as an example, Tolkien was really big on, uh, with Lewis, I think, as well, on what he called northernness, hmm. which was for him the particular set of virtues that were characteristic, particularly of the cultures of northern Europe. It's not to say they weren't found elsewhere, but they were the specific kinds of virtues that those cultures really emphasized. And I think he and Lewis would both agree that these are virtues that are missing in the modern world. That is, in fact, really, in a lot of ways, the point of the first essay in The Abolition of Man, Men Without Chests. Hmm. You know, when you take a look at what they saw as the characteristics, the, the particular strengths of Northern European culture, they're really, in many ways, the antidote to men without chests. Hmm. So, for example, you find things like uh, like courage, like loyalty, like self-sacrifice. Um, you even find um, an emphasis on wisdom that I hadn't expected to find wisdom as big, wisdom yeah. as being considerably more important than prowess in yeah. battle. Um, you know, those sorts of things. Now, I've got to be honest with you. When I, I, this is probably the effect of, of um, uh, reading too much about uh, neo-paganism. When I think about Norse mythology, um, I'm typically in the world of, um, of uh, Ragnarok, the end of the world, <laughs> uh, warfare. Uh, I note that Odin, when he has a particular favorite, he'll lead him into battle and then betray him so he'll be killed so he can get into Valhalla. Um, I mean, Odin is really a treacherous guy. Um, you know, and so on. Th those are the things that come to my mind. But if you dig a little deeper into the myths, you start finding all kinds of other things that are really different. You know, so uh, I think that what Tolkien is trying to get at is that in order for modern society really to recover virtue, we need to recover myth. Because myth tells, this, tells stories 
that go beyond just simply rational, logical discourse, and they resonate deeply in our souls in a way that can inspire us much more than a rational argument can. And it's interesting because I think this actually was something from a different set of language people like Alistair McIntyre were talking about with narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, the narrative, and, and, and on that point, I mean, what now everyone's using narrative um, in very loose ways, but not profound ways like like these figures were talking. But it's like Charles Taylor said, I mean, yes, you have to be rational and logical, but if you're just rational and logical without anything to fill it, you can't get further than the end of your nose. I mean, about what? Well, about life, which is always structured and therefore at its most fundamental level story. I mean, that's kind of what they're, they're onto there. Um, but, but it's interesting because this, this is a question that comes up with all this material. Um, let, me put, let me see if I can ask this question in a way where it doesn't sound so strange. So the sufficiency of scripture for us as Protestants does not mean certain things that oftentimes we think it means. For example, scripture doesn't, it teaches us that there is a reality to which mathematics would definitely correspond, but it doesn't teach us mathematics, right? I can't study the scriptures and get, I I can get a lot of the reality. I I can get the reality picture for which to understand mathematics properly, but it doesn't teach me algebra, for example. So I have to learn algebra to understand something about reality that corresponds to what scripture said, finds its fulfillment and completion in it, right? Um, the same with languages, right? I mean, if you can't read, it doesn't do good much good to have the scripture, right? The sufficiency of it is not such that it jumps over my abil- inability to read if I don't have someone around to read it. I can hold it. I can look at it. But, right, there's language. There are things in, and scripture would affirm so much. Scripture comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, it being read, right? So it affirms that there are these realities to which scripture affirms, gives the reality vision, but scripture isn't supplying, right? Um, scripture doesn't give me, for example, the, the, the um, grammar or the words of how to speak Ukrainian, for example, or, or Spanish, right? Unless I have a Spanish Bible, Ukrainian, right? So the sufficiency of scripture is not mean only the Bible and I learn nothing else. It means that only the Bible in terms of the full vision of who God is in Christ and our union with God, and then the whole reality vision, the frame, the worldview, if you will, um, from which, or the, the history from which to read it all. Now, what is it about myth that it supplies, that is not a, in competition with scripture, but is something like language or mathematics that gives us something that when in the full scripture vision, gives us something that otherwise we wouldn't have. And I think that's what they're answering. And I don't know if you, if anyone wants to take a stab at how to, yeah. to make that concise. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great way to put it, Tom. I, I, I guess, I'm, you know, I've been pretty deep into uh, Tolkien's uh, an essay on fairy stories uh, recently. And one of the things he spends a lot of time on that probably, probably people who read uh, on fairy stories just sort of breeze through quickly because it doesn't interest them is the sort of stuff that would interest an academic. And that is, you know, kind of the Genesis or the transmission of a, of a story, a fairy story. So where, where, do, where do fairy stories come from? So he, he talks a little bit about hmm. this whole, this whole matter of, 
Uh, here we have all these strange things going on in these stories. And um, if we take the strange things out, the stories lose their power. So somehow the strange things got into the stories. How did they get into the stories? So, you know, he gives a, a, a range of kind of historicist and, uh, you know, explanations for how these things occurred. Uh, but then Tolkien says, uh, in effect, but it's the literary effect of these things in the stories that we treasure and hold on to. Hmm. So even though, you know, even though it's, we can say, okay, this, you know, he talks about this, for example, he, he has this amusing uh, aside where he talks about a banana peel and uh, the uh, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> <laughs> and well, it's worth noting that the Archbishop of Canterbury is Anglican and Tolkien was a Catholic. <laughs> That's right. So he has him slipping on this banana peel and he says, okay, well, well, as we're, as we're thinking about this story about a banana peel and so forth, we might wonder where did the banana peel come from? In other words, how did the, how did the banana peel get into the story? But then there's the fact that we enjoy the story because the Archbishop of Canterbury slips on it. The, that's the thing that we want to, to, to sort of enjoy about the story. And that's why it gets passed on. So we kind of miss the point when we get wrapped up in these, you know, sort of tertiary secondary matters. It's the story itself. There's something about the story that is affecting us and it's telling us something about human nature. In other words, laughing at, you know, yeah, Tolkien, you know, makes note of the fact that, you know, a dignified elderly man is slipping on a banana peel. That's part of the joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now, it's worth noting that Homer would have told you where the banana peel came from. <laughs> That's characteristic of Homer's writing. It's almost literally the true. I mean, he right. would have. But, but, in, in, but in the case of Homer, wouldn't you say, though, that there is some kind of significance, mythological even significance, to the origin of the elements in the story as opposed to, say, the modern mind uh, with his explanations, which is almost demystifying. In, in, in Homer's case, it's more of an aesthetic in Greek um, that's referred to as fullness of expression. In English, we're taught, if we're taught writing correctly, we're taught to write as concisely as possible because that will make it clearer and will have more of an impact. Greek aesthetic was totally different. They wanted you to expand everything out. So the classic example is Odysseus's scar. He's at the, you know, he, he comes home secretly. He's disguised as a beggar. A, um, a serving woman is going to wash his feet, and she notices a scar on his thigh and recognizes him from the scar. Homer has to go off and tell you the whole story about how he got the scar. <laughs> He'd tell you where the banana peel came from. It's like my mother-in-law who can't <laughs> determine whether this particular element is important or not. And so she tells you everything, <laughs> but not as artfully as Homer. <laughs> Chris is many miles away right now. So he can get away with that kind of. <laughs> as a, as a, and my mother-in-law doesn't listen to the show. So I can... <laughs> that too. Um, uh, interesting point because they, they, uh, Tolkien in particular and Lewis as well, um, they focused often on this notion also as humans made in the image of God with a distinct um, interest in their kind of co-creative capacities, not in the sense that we create ex nihilo. We're not uh, extending or, or expanding God's creation in terms of it, any of its, the potential that's there. I mean, it's, this, this is, belongs to God alone. 
but made in the image of God, our imaginative dimensions are not only, as Calvin would say, idol-making factories, but they also have a, a dimension to them that is analogous to the, the, the creative aspects of our maker. And so I think this is something that the aesthetic dimension uh, and return in theology wants to get a hold of without blurring the distance, without making us the generators through our imagination of, of new idols, but actually that there is a place for our imagination. And in that imagination is some kind of vehicle for exhibiting some truth that is analogous to the truth that we are made in the image of the one who creates. And I think they were onto something in this. And I think this is actually the answer to the, the, the corrupt view of human beings as simply um, uh, imposers of their will on the world, their will to power. I think there's something, I think the answer is actually found in the image of God and our creativity grounded in a proper relation to the creator that allows Tolkien to do something the postmodern can do. Yeah, and I would also add, although Tolkien and neither Tolkien nor Lewis nor Dorothy Sayers, for that matter, uh, to the best of my knowledge, go in this direction, I strongly suspect that they would agree that the most pure form of sub-creation is storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I because would it's done by word. You create with your words when you tell a story in the same way that God created when he spoke the world into existence. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tolkien in On Fairy Stories, uh, it makes the point that literature is the best vehicle for what we're talking about here and that drama, um, and that would include, I suppose, film, um, it just doesn't doesn't carry, you know, is, is not capable of doing what literature can do. And he gives a, a series of arguments. In other words, uh, Tolkien, in effect, uh, said that the movies that are based on his books are, uh, by definition, impossible to get what he's <laughs> getting at. <laughs> um, right. one, one of the things I was thinking about is I was considering this is, you know, when we think about Common Grace, I think that generally speaking, maybe this is unfair, but I think the Reformed, uh, when they think of common grace, uh, relegate it to just simply uh, restraining evil. In other words, it's in, and that's certainly important. I don't have any argument with that. But I, I wonder, uh, and I can't speak to this, but I maybe you guys can. I wonder if it's possible to, or if it's been done, uh, to expand our understanding of common grace to include the sorts of things we're talking about right now. Yeah, you know, when you when you look at um, Paul on Mars Hill, what does he do? He appeals to the Athenian shrine to the unknown god. Um, he doesn't tell them, you know, he doesn't condemn them, he doesn't attack them. He just points out to them that they're reaching for something that's that they know is there. Yeah, but they're not sure what to do with it. You know, it's interesting. If you go to Central Asia, um, to Mongolia, the traditional religion in Mongolia is called Tengriism. It's a form of shamanism, but it's got gods. And the supreme god is Tengri, which is a word that means the heavens. 
Um, I think Tengri is, I suspect it's the root for Tien in Chinese. So when they talk about the mandate of heaven, they're actually going back to this idea of a supreme god. So this, does this tie into Tiananmen Square? Yeah, Tiananmen yeah. Square. Tiananmen means heaven's gate yeah. in Chinese. Yeah. So, But Tengri is the supreme god. He's the lord of all. He's sovereign over everything that happens. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Um, on and on and on. We would recognize everything that they say about Tengri except one thing. He doesn't speak, not mm. to humans at least, mm. which is why you need shamans who interact with lesser spirits to give you the information from, from the mm. gods or from God. As a matter of fact, there are many uh, uh, religious studies people who will argue that uh, Tengriism is a form of monotheism. And there's a lot of evidence that early Chinese religion was monotheistic. But the thing that's intriguing about this is their concept of God is almost completely recognizable to us, except that he doesn't speak. Where did they get that? It would be recognizable to us probably up to a certain point until historicism took over. Well, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. that's a different show. Yeah, I just had to throw it out there. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's our second historicism crack for the day. We may get some more in before we're done. Um, I have a third, but we, I'll let you finish. I yeah. do. <laughs> but but the the you know again common common grace. People know things beyond what they should know, and it it's. Because uh, I mean, common grace is much, much bigger than restraining evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to say something, Tom? Yeah. Uh, just to uh, uh, take a step, uh, two steps back, uh, when you were talking about uh, liter literature being kind of this principal form, um, uh, uh, you know, that uh, Tolkien was talking about, I, I do want to qualify it again because, again, I do think a lot of times there's a lot of talk now about the drama of God. And, and this is a historicization of the literary. And they're right in the sense of literary and, and story being those prime vehicles, but they're wrong in the sense that they almost make um, God as uh, uh, agent within the story the same as any other kind of creaturely magnitude just in a big way. And Christians are doing it all the time now. God is, you know, I, I um, Francesca... I think her last name, uh, Murphy, I, I want to think Catholic writer. She wrote uh, her dissertation, and it's actually on film, ironically, in literature, but she said God is not a story. Um, and her whole point was showing the way in which we've, we've sort of historicized God into taking story and making it history. And um, this is something I don't think that, that Tolkien is doing, and this is what I don't think myth is doing. It's not confusing story with history. Um, and this is this is this is very unique because Christianity weds these things together in a very different way. Um, but but uh, but that's why this can speak to universal things, and yet the vehicle itself is going to be very localized. Yeah. Um, and this is uh, but, but anyway. But yeah. there's a lot, a lot I don't want to chase down now, but that's an important point because a lot of times people think, you know, I hear all the time in Kevin Van Hoos's work, which I like some of, but it's all about the literary and the, and the linguistic, but it is completely talk about God as sort of basically one more agent within the story that is impacted by all the other agents in the story. Yeah, there's everything is horizontal. They've lost touch with the vertical yeah. dimension of things. I, I was, I've been, I've been reading, um, 
screw tape letters uh, every morning. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Lewis, he, he touches on everything. Uh, he touches on historicism. He calls it, yeah. you know, the historical point of view. <laughs> and uh, he uh, addresses... That's a better way of putting it. Well, what he's what he's addressing is he's saying that you know the problem with the problem with scholarship at you know even in his day was that if you could attribute something to a, a source historically, then you don't you didn't you didn't have to ask yourself is it true? You just said well that's where that came from, and I think that's kind of what Tolkien's getting at with his essay on fairy stories when he's talking about origins. He's saying what we have is a story right now that speaks to us. Let's think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, um, Lewis dedicated screw tape to Tolkien. Yeah. I remember seeing that. Yeah. And Tolkien was horrified. (laughs) (laughs) Because Now, now this is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Think about, um, think about Saruman in the Lord of the Rings. What went wrong? He studied the arts of the enemy too deeply. <laughs> right. And right. Tolkien very self-consciously never explored evil in that way, trying yeah, to understand yeah. it, trying to see how it works. He thought Lewis's screw tape leather letters was getting way, way too close to the mind of Satan. <laughs> and that in fact, that was genuinely dangerous, genuinely spiritually dangerous. You'll notice the only perspective you get in Tolkien in the entire thing is really the perspective of the good. You never look into the mind of Morgoth. You never look into the mind of Sauron. You get an occasional comment from the mind of the Witch King, but only one or two. Other than that, it's all the part of the fellowship and people associated with the good. I I remember um, David Steinmetz when I was a student at Duke um, talking about this issue, and he was talking about how C.S. Lewis himself said he had to really shake himself off at the end of the day after thinking about this because, yeah, it was like looking into the abyss, if you will. Right. And and I remember he, him also commenting that uh, Anthony Hopkins said something very similar when doing that uh, character. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, Silence Electric. of the Lamb. Yes. Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that there was there was something something very yeah something. But that but I think this gets to the point. I mean, when you start to hone in on these kind of realities and focus in through character, through story, through through imagery, um, you do start to relate to that kind of reality and. Uh, Right. Did you guys see that Anthony Hopkins is going to going to star as Ransom in a, a film version of uh, That Hideous Strength? No, I no. did not. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I just saw that wow. last week. Perfect. And, well, and and, it, and he's become a believer, you know. That's probably. He was an atheist for mo- almost his entire life, and just recently he came to faith. Ah. Well, that's probably what's behind it. Uh, uh, the guy who plays Lord Feverstone. Uh, was the guy that uh, said uh, the guy that played uh, James Bond before the most recent of the Bronson or Pierce uh, Brosnan? Pierce, he's he's playing Lord Feverstone. Interesting. Oh my. Well, uh, <laughs> another figure uh, kind of surprised you, David Suquet. Uh, remember Poirot became a convert reading Romans eight in a hotel room mm. um, after years of of no religion, and then uh, Richard Harris. I don't know a lot of people know Richard Harris. A very similar story. His wife became uh, he and his wife became friends with who is the famous 
evangelist, a green, is it green in UK? It's the Billy yeah, Graham yeah. of the UK. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. Sure. And so when he passed, actually, the, the uh, green married uh, Harris's wife at Harris's recommendation. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but they, they, were fr- they were friends for years, but uh, interesting yeah. story that, that sometimes mm-hmm. these, these people who are familiar with literature, drama, yeah. acting kind of kind of hone in through this angle um lewis mm-hmm. tolkien mm-hmm. and uh and yeah, and scripture yeah. itself ultimately yeah, yeah. yeah david Suchet actually recorded i think it was the gospel of mark he, he's performed it he's got it completely memorized and he, he recites it i mean it's, oh, it's wow. amazing yeah and he did uh, i think a film on is it saint peter or a documentary mm-hmm. yeah yeah so this other, yeah, other well, it's this is one of the things that maybe maybe it's a, a subject for a, sh- a show, you know, sort of like famous people at the end of their lives and their conversions. You know, you think about yeah. like Lord Byron. Uh, my understanding is that he can be ah. at the end of his life. Now, there's a guy that's a quite a story. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that's what I've, I've I'm pretty sure I heard that. Maybe, interesting. Maybe, maybe, so that would uh, be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. Especially his relationship with the Shelleys and all that. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> right. Yeah. Scary stuff. Talk about, you know, sort of studies and evil. There's a guy that, uh, you know, did that experientially. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I always thought Frankenstein would be a good show, too. Um, oh, yeah. Just, just for the, I mean, because, you know, here, you, you, a deliberate notion of, the uh, you know, a modern view of Prometheus. Okay. So yeah. you're talking Mary Shelley. Mary not Shelley. Edgar, not Edgar Winter. That's right. That's right. We could put. We could actually use the soundtrack for Edgar Winter when we did the show. Right. I like the Winter Brothers. I'm sorry. I'm from, <laughs> from that time. You know, In case you don't know who they are, just think white, long hair. <laughs> well, uh, we probably should start, should start kind of pulling this in. One of the things, though, that you know, I was, I, I, you know, I, I, it occurred to me early on in the episode when you were talking about myth. And uh, Glenn was in, in talking about the Odyssey uh, and how it uh, is something that uh, in some sense is, you know, rooted in history, but in another way gets us to something that's bigger. You know, I got I couldn't help but think about, oh, brother, where art thou, which is marvelous and adaption and uh, kind of the Gothic Southern Gothic tradition and the gospel and how that all kind of is brought together, but it, it works so well. And my, 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 my sense is that the reason it works so well is because the Odyssey is getting at something mythic, right? Mm-hmm. It's getting at something that's true all the time. Yeah. yeah. And with that, let me, let me find another quote here. This is a poem, part of a poem by Tolkien called Mythopoeia. Huh. in which it makes references mm-hmm. to the Odyssey. Hmm. And it's interesting what Tolkien does with it. Blessed are the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not that they have forgot the night or bid us flee to organize the light in lotus isles of economic bliss for swearing <laughs> souls to gain a Circe kiss and counterfeit at that machine produced bogus seduction of the twice seduced. So he's comparing, this is, this takes a little bit of thought, but what he's comparing is true myth. You know, the, the legend makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. The, the, he's comparing myth with what we have in our culture, which is sort of 
organized the light in Lotus Isles, Lotus Isles from the Odyssey, of economic bliss. Yeah, right, right. Uh, for swearing souls to gain a Cersei kiss and counterfeited that machine produced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, he's Maybe. talking about, about the way in which modern society, mass production, economics, all of these kinds of things mm. that occupy our life and time are really nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're counterfeits, they're fake, we're twice seduced by these things. But instead, the legend makers, the myth makers who talk about things that never really were, but in a sense really are, they're the ones who are really blessed. Hmm. Yeah, this reference to the Lotus Eaters, I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, I, I do, I interact with a lot of young guys around the country. I'm, I'm, you know, people connect with me, guys connect with me almost every day from all over the place. And one of the things that a lot of these young guys are dealing with is the lotus eating character of pornography and the internet and gaming culture and all that stuff and how it consumes them even Mm -hmm. as they consume it, you know, very much like the lotus eaters, you know, they kind of enter this state, this altered mental state and they, they miss out on reality. And after a while, a lot of these guys kind of come around, you know, they're, they're often in their mid twenties or, you know, getting to the end of their twenties when they wake up and they realize I've wasted the last 10 years of my life in this hmm. nonsense. And they're, they're, you know, sort of chagrined and they're, 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 they're they decide to try to kind of address the problem as best they can, as quick as they can, but they find that so many of the things that they would have learned if they had been in touch with reality, they need to learn late, just all kinds of stuff. Um, But again, this whole matter, you know, this is not new, you know, this is not a problem that came into, Mm -hmm. sort of came into, uh, to vogue with the internet. This is just the latest version Version of, of, of lotus eating. We've right. had this problem before in other yeah. forms. Yeah, and this is why, among other things, the current trend of canceling Homer in schools and everybody else along with Homer is, is such a mistake because these great works of literature that have stood for thousands of years and great myth speaks to realities that are eternal. They're unchanging. They take different forms at different times, but these things really speak to the human experience. They speak to life in this world in a way that a lot of the other stuff that we're getting right now is frankly shallow schlock. It just doesn't touch. Right. Yeah. And it's moralistic and very thin and shrill. You know, all the stuff that the, uh, the woke create is just really boring. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, it, you know, without holding back, <laughs> um, without holding back, they're, they're illiterates. I mean, that's, that's what right. they are. And this is what happens. It's, it's like fundamentalism. You become an extremist on a minor point because you have no major points. That's and, right. and so um, you, you, you take, you know, you, you take this little tiny crust of a point and turn it into uh, the, the whole way to read reality. Anything that shakes it is a threat. Um, yeah, where, right. where, I mean, Christianity, I mean, it's had its moments of doing that, but on the other hand, it was the Augustans and, and the other figures that said, wait a minute, we're not scared of you. As a matter of fact, when you understand who Christ is as Lord of all things, you understand that he is the creator by which all 
light as, as its source and end, you're not intimidated. You actually go boldly into the world and bring all things into its conformity. It's a completely different vision. Yeah, that's a great way to end the show because I think that sums up kind of the spirit of what you know you you had introduced, Glenn, but also even our even our our podcast. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to throw in one final comment on my sure. part. Sure. When I was a kid um, growing up. Well, my grandfather had me reading Edgar Allan Poe when I was eight, which accounts, I think, for things like my obsession with plague and stuff like that. But, but I mean, aside from that, the, 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 my favorite things to read were always myths. Yeah, yeah. I loved, I absolutely loved mythology, everything about it. I read everything I could get my hands on in mythology, including, by the way, I was if we had run, had the time, I was going to talk about a myth from this book, which I don't think you can actually see, it's by Pad Column. It's called The Children of Odin. It's a retelling of a bunch of Norse myths. And I was going to use one of those as an illustration of the kinds of positive virtues you can get from Norse mythology. But, but be that as it may, there was something about mythology that always appealed to me. It always resonated with me. It always, it always tried to, I, I was basically a, not very physically adept kid, um, all of these kinds of things. And it always made me want to be like the heroes in the book. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be like them. There was something there that I, I saw that I admired that, that I aspired to mm -hmm. even as, even as a, just a little child reading kids versions of the myths. Yeah. Yeah. And that it seems to me is the, the, Another way of looking at what Tolkien is saying about the value of myth, it yeah. teaches you, it, it encourages the kind of virtue in you that you don't really get any other way, but through appealing to your imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to end it. Anyway, well, this has been a good, good stuff, fun conversation. And uh, we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. Um, our audience continues to grow. We keep getting emails from around the world, people asking us questions. We do our best to keep up with them. We appreciate your interest in the show, and we appreciate your support. There are a number of people out there who give us money. Can you believe it? On a monthly basis. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, it does help to defer the cost of the show. The the, uh, the the guys, you know, uh, Glenn, Tom, and I, we don't we don't make any money on this. Um, it uh, all the all the gifts that come in go into taking care of the production costs, and so we're grateful for that. Particularly the guy who takes care of the production. <laughs> but anyway, thanks again. Thanks a lot again for for uh, listening in, and we uh, we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye now. Bye.